HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Washington Wine. Download the Map My Washington Wine app. It's Map My W-A Wine and get all the Washington Wine right in your hand. Washington Wine, this is now. When I think of hot sauce, I think of my mom's boyfriend, Chris. I was under the impression that he brought all 30 of his hot sauces over when he moved in. But turns out I got the story wrong. No, none of the hot sauce made it on the journey. It stayed behind. After that was cleared up, our conversation around hot sauce became almost philosophical. I think for me, hot sauce might be something that goes hand in hand with being alone. I think that maybe it's something to... uh, to make my experience that much more animated, that I'm not having a conversation with anybody while I'm eating. So in a way, maybe I want to have a conversation with the food and it sparks it up. I can have fun with seeing like how much hot sauce I can have or how much is too much. Or, you know, when I would be sort of shopping for myself, things like a hot sauce might catch my eye. It's just something that's for me. That It's definitely something that I bought for my, for my benefit and I'm not expecting anybody else to try it. When you're eating something that's hot, it's like you're experiencing the heat. It's not necessarily something you're experiencing together. I guess it's about like what your specific taste is and like what you like and how hot you want it to be. It's something that you can control a little bit. When talking to Chris, intern Zoe Denkla was reminded just how relative spice can be. Whether it's how much you can handle or a personal connection with a sauce collection. From hot sauce to hot temperatures, we're bringing the heat this week. We have stories from a beach in Brooklyn famous for its classic summertime snack. We talk about premium peppers from China's Sichuan province, take a hard look at how climate change is affecting growers in the Pacific Northwest, and visit a Bay Area tea shop to see what we can learn about staying cool. I'm Dylan Hoyer, HRN's communications associate and producer, stepping in as co-host. And this is Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meet, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet and Three. Supplementing any meal with spice turns up the temperature. Hannah Fulmer talks with Jing Gao about introducing a chili crisp sauce to the U.S. market that also brings a rich history to the table. 
it's hard to find another item that is as good on pizza as it is on ice cream. Um, and so, you know, it just somehow works. And like, I didn't invent it. This is a condiment that's been around for thousands of years. That's Jing Gao. She's talking about chili crisp, a spicy, crispy, savory, oil-based hot sauce originating in China. Her company, Fly by Jing, is known for its Sichuan chili crisp. All of this was really inspired by my hometown Chengdu, which is the food capital of Sichuan. So for me, it actually started out as a personal quest to reconnect with myself. Um, but later it turned into more of a mission to shine light on the cuisine and its culture. There are countless recipes and regional varieties of chili crisp. Every family probably even has their own recipe. But in the States... The only product, you know, up until this point, there's there's been one brand from Guizhou province in China called Lagama, and they were the only brand before this point that, you know, was available in the U.S. And so, you know, for someone who's never, you know, explored beyond that, to them, that could represent all of, you know, Chinese sauces. That's true for much of Chinese food in the U.S. Despite having many distinct regional cuisines, many Americans see Chinese food as homogeneous. But when Jing made her chili crisp, she made it distinctly Szechuan. And so uh, for me, it always blew my mind why someone would make a product that has no flavor, but only heat, right? But in Sichuan, it's like a dish is not a complete dish unless it fulfills many different aspects. You know, the way it looks, does it look appetizing? Does it have this luster? Is it inviting? How does it smell? What's the fragrance? Um, what is the mouth feel, right? So there's so much going on. And the, the art of Sichuan food is in balancing it all so that nothing ever feels out of place. It's almost like you know that it's perfect in, in like many ways, but you can't put your finger on exactly why or how. Jing sourced all 18 ingredients in the Fly by Jing Chili Crisp from Sichuan. Finding them meant pushing back on another misconception about Chinese food that it has to be cheap for it to be authentic or good. You know, that's a disservice to, to Chinese food in China, where they've been developing it as an art for 5,000 years. Um, and so much of the highest quality ingredients in the world are found in China, but we just don't have exposure or access to them. And these misconceptions can affect what manufacturers produce. When I try to scale it and make it into a packaged product, I realized why there wasn't anything of very high quality on the market on a mass level because there were so many resistances. At every step of the way, a manufacturer would have the choice to take a shortcut, to cut a corner. In the West, um, not only do people you know, not know about Chinese cuisine, they think that it's supposed to be cheap, dirty, and unhealthy. And so as a result, if manufacturers are told that people are not willing to pay more than $2 for something, they would never put anything of quality into a product. Jing wanted those high-quality ingredients, and she wanted to bring them to the States. So it was really like an interrogation into what is the highest form of this specific ingredient that I can find. For her Szechuan chilies, Jing set her sights on tribute peppers. They're one of the highest-quality Szechuan peppers in the world. They got their name because they were previously only given as tribute to the emperor. They're rare, hard to get, and expensive. They are super high in demand and um, very rare. And so 
it was through years of kind of relationship building and, you know, literally me driving out into the countryside four hours from Chengdu to, um, to secure that supply. So that sourcing decision to get only tribute peppers um, was a decision I, you know, it was the only choice I could have made because after having worked with tribute peppers, you really can't go back to any other type. The Fly by Jing Chili Crisp is a distinctly Szechuan sauce, but it's also built from Jing's personal experience. It's an expression that's very personal to me because um, it's a direct result of kind of the way that, um, you know, my personal story. Having been born in Chengdu, grew up, you know, moving to like eight different countries. And um, this is a personal expression, you know. Um, There's no point in trying to fit it into a frame of reference because what we're trying to do is really expand that frame of reference to show that there's room for complexity and diversity even within Uh, Chinese food, even within Sichuan food. This is just one of literally thousands of expressions of Chinese food. Spice can add incredible complexity to the flavor of our food. But are you someone who craves heat in the height of summer? Tao V. Duong embarks on a body heat experiment to find out the best ways to cool down. Picture this. It's a hot afternoon, almost 100 degrees Fahrenheit outside. The sun is high and vicious. Heatwave is the buzzword of the month, as folks from coast to coast linger in front of their open fridge and contemplate cracking an egg over the sidewalk. What are you craving in this weather? Perhaps it's something sweet and decadent like ice cream, or something tart and refreshing like lemonade. Whatever it is, it's probably icy cold. But recently, I heard of an interesting method to cool off in the summer, consuming hot foods and drinks. It might seem counterintuitive to fight fire with fire. With a heat wave hitting where I am in the Bay Area though, I wanted to test it out. Are you excited? No, not really. (laughs) That's my little brother, Hui. He's 15, an avid volleyball player, and a very enthusiastic participant in my very empirical experiment. There's nothing scientific about this. On a Friday afternoon, the weather was a sunny 97 degrees Fahrenheit. With Hui's vote of confidence, we headed out to one of my favorite tea shops in San Jose, Tea Life. We ordered... A hot honey ginseng oolong tea, and now I'm going to be taking my first sip. Mmm, that kind of burns whole. It's burning my throat. Despite that... The tea tastes really good. Feeling nice and warm right now. We sat outside, letting the heat marinate. And eventually... I'm feeling very sweaty. And that's pretty much what it's about. Sweat. In 2012, researchers at the University of Sydney's Thermal Ergonomics Lab found that consuming hot drinks lets your body retain less heat. It has to do with thermoregulation, the process through which our bodies maintain a baseline internal temperature. In the cold, we shiver, and in the heat, we sweat. When we eat or drink something hot, the thermosensors in our esophagus and stomach pick up on this heat. They signal the brain, which then triggers your sweat glands. And as sweat hits the air, it evaporates and cools you down. 
When we indulge in cold treats, the cooling sensation is immediate and satisfying, but we keep in more body heat. In the lab, the better choice seems clear. Real life, however, is a bit of a different story. I joined Hui in sipping on the tea, and in a matter of minutes, I was feeling the misery. I'm so sweaty right now. Eventually, we called it a day. While drinking hot tea may have cooled us down, it's not an enjoyable experience. In the long run, what matters most is staying hydrated. Whether your choice of beverage is something icy or hot. By the end of this little experiment, Hui and I were mostly excited to get back into the car. Oh, turn the AC on now! We'll be right back with more meet and three after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by the wine the world is talking about, Washington Wine. From its one-of-a-kind landscapes to a statewide culture of craft and innovation, Washington is made to make wine. That's why winemakers from around the globe are coming to Washington to set up shop, and why 90-point wines are practically falling from the skies. Ready to sip for yourself? August is Washington Wine Month. Meaning it's the perfect time to explore some wineries, 1,050 and counting, and try some of today's most exciting wines. The new Map My Washington Wine app makes it easier than ever too. You can get to know all the wineries, tasting rooms, and vineyards, find nearby events, customize your ultimate wine trip, and more. Download the free Map My Washington Wine app. That's map my WA wine and get all of Washington wine right in your hand. Washington wine, this is now. Welcome back to Meet and Three. When it's hot in New York City, it's really hot, especially if you have to take the train. But if you manage to survive the crowded Manhattan stations and keep going south to the end of the F line, you can get to the magical Coney Island a place that is hard to believe is part of New York. When I think of Coney Island, I think about summertime, the beach, the Luna Park amusement rides. But in terms of food, there is only one thing that comes to mind, and that's the hot dog. Everyone, whether you've been to Coney Island, been to New York, or if you live, well, I would say probably outside the country even, you've heard of the Coney Island hot dog. It's become kind of a thing on its own. That is Linda Palaccio, a culinary historian and host of HRN's A Taste of the Past. In episode 344, she interviewed Michael Quinn. He is an expert on Coney Island, who is also committed to resurrecting the original Coney Island hot dog. Here is Michael to give us the history of Charles Feltman, the person who actually invented the hot dog. Charles Feltman was a German immigrant. Um, he was a baker by trade. Uh, he came here to the United States in, um, when he was 14 years old, uh, um, back around in the 1850s. In the summer of 1867, he noticed that people didn't want to eat pie and things that are sticky along the sand dunes of Coney Island. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted lunch. So um, Henry Lehman, who he was roomed with at the time, uh, worked at a meat uh, facility by the Brooklyn Navy Yard. He was making all these types of 
you know, uh, beef and, and sausages and things like that, which kind of reflected the type of sausages that were made in their homeland of Germany. So we said, I have a good idea. You know, why don't I, if I can make them lunch? So we went back to his bakery on 10th Street and made these elongated buns and linked up with, with Henry at the, the, the um, meat facility and decided to create what we know today as the hot dog. That summer, Charles Feltman sold more than 3,500 hot dogs along the beach, or as he called them, Coney Island Red Hots. He eventually opened a restaurant that would become a huge hit, selling up to 40,000 Red Hots daily before closing permanently in 1954. My grandfather acquired the recipe that was made way back when, um, and, and I acquired it from him in 1992. So for years, I had this, this recipe, and I really didn't know what to do with it. And we wanted to bring back a business like Feltman's. Today, Michael Quinn sells these famous Feltman's of Coney Island hot dogs out of his virtual store, as well as in over 15,000 stores and supermarkets across the country. Trips to the beach and boardwalk food are quintessential to summertime. But this summer is also defined by record-breaking temperatures. Carmen Sherlock travels to the Pacific Northwest to understand how winemakers are adapting to recent heat waves. If there's one thing that keeps me awake at night, it's, uh, it's the fires. It's always been something like, oh, the fires happen every year. But I think to see them this close is really eye-opening. And, you know, to see how, how they burn, it's not very far away from, from any of us. You know, it's kind of in that urban-rural transition zone where it really hit home. I think it's always been, it's like, oh, wow, it's really tough in California. We really feel for those guys. And all of a sudden, it's like, man, no, it's right. It's in our backyard. That's Paul Durant. He's the owner of Durant Vineyards in Dayton, Oregon. Though the recent heat waves are extreme, they're part of a much larger trend in rising temperatures. It really has been a decade since our last really cool growing season, which was 2011. All of our Pinot Noir was harvested into late October and even uh, early November. But starting kind of 2012, it's, it's just trended progressively each year, uh, warmer and warmer. And, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do, to be totally honest, where we used to feel like we were water rich. I guess we are more of a conservation mode and uh, trying to focus uh, water resources where we can. Durant Vineyards is dry farmed, meaning they rely on rainfall and natural groundwater rather than artificial irrigation to water their vines. We don't really have a, a safety net with irrigation in the vineyard. You know, we really try to make high-end wines. And so, you know, irrigation uh, really affects, in my opinion, the quality of the fruit. So it doesn't really buy you much, given that this is, you know, a record drought, you know, nothing like we've ever experienced uh, in my lifetime. You know, and we've been here farming for 50 years. It's just, it's just hopefully those vines that are deep enough that they'll be able to get the water that they need. With Oregon's historically mild summers, winemakers used to struggle with getting their grapes to ripen fast enough. Now, they're ripening too fast. Harvest season has shifted from mid-fall to late summer, and this affects how the wine tastes. The sugar goes up, acid drops, and then the phenolics, you know, those flavor compounds, uh, tend to, they, they lag. Pinot Noir grapes, Oregon's specialty, like cool weather. As temperatures change, so does the Pinot. It becomes more fruit-forward and higher in alcohol. Smoke from fires also affects the grapes. 
penetrating their skins and creating a smoke taint in the wine. The heat and smoke impact the workers, too, making it nearly impossible to tend to the vines. It's flat out just not safe. Last month, when temperatures soared above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, Paul had to briefly close the winery. Whether you're out in the field or whether you're working in and around the tasting room, I didn't even want people, you know, we, we actually had some people up here trying to drink wine, you know, it was so hot. It's like, you can sit in the sun, but my staff has to, they are hustling and it's like, it's just not, not appropriate. We just closed down and, and just kind of stopped service, so. But then obviously, too, you know, we as a small operator, we really rely on people coming here to taste the wine. And through like last fall, you know, it was over Labor Day weekend. You know, it just wasn't safe. And, you know, and people just don't want to be out and about. One Oregon farm worker has died from the heat this year. His name was Sebastian Francisco Perez, and he was a Guatemalan immigrant who had arrived in the U.S. just weeks before to work at a nursery in St. Paul, Oregon. He was working on irrigation lines in 104-degree heat. The Oregon Occupational Safety and Health Administration has created guidelines around milestone temperatures to try to protect workers. But immigrant workers in the U.S. are at triple the risk of heat-related death compared to U.S. citizens. Climate change is disproportionately impacting the lives and livelihoods of farm workers and threatening an industry the world has come to love and rely on. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Zoe Denkla, Hannah Fulmer, Tao V. Duong, Pablo Alvarez, and Carmen Sherlock. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is powered by Simplecast. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out.